If you guys could uh, all open up your Bibles to the book of Galatians, that's where, what we're going to be looking at this morning. Over the past month or so here down in the youth uh, Sunday school, both the Thrive, which is our middle school group, and Illuminate, which is our high schoolers, uh, we've been studying the book of Galatians. And since Pastor Tom wasn't able to be here today and asked me to fill in for him, I thought it would be a good opportunity uh, to kind of communicate to you guys, let you guys know what we've been studying about down there and giving you a glimpse uh, into life in Youth Sunday School. Uh, in a moment, we're going to watch a video, and we actually watched it last week with our teens. It's an eight-minute video, and it does a really good job uh, of giving you an overview, a, a bird's-eye perspective of forest, not the tree, but the forest view of the book of Galatians. And uh, I think it'll help especially all of you visual learners to be able to kind of see and put together a lot of the, the different themes and uh, different theological issues and a lot of the social cultural issues that are all happening in this relatively short book. Uh, so we're going to do that in just a minute. But uh, after and after that, I want to hone in specifically on chapters two and three. We're going to be looking at the first portion of Galatians and, and uh, looking at some of the theological lessons from uh, those couple of chapters and then looking at also a couple of applications, because uh, that's the question. Whenever we look at scripture, it's like, what does this mean for me? What, how does this affect and impact my life? And so definitely want to close uh, with that. But before we watch this video, I want you to understand the tone of, of this letter that Paul is writing to uh, the church, uh, the Christians in the area of Galatia. Uh, the tone is, it's the mood, the emotions, it's always a hard thing to be able to capture in a letter. That's one of the reasons I've got a, like a personal policy. If I'm frustrated or have a lot of emotions going on, I try not to write letters. Uh, that seems to be a bad thing for me. I can't tell you how many, like, how many times I've frustrated and I start typing out of the email and, you know, like banging out the keys, you know, and, and get it all written out. And then it's like, then finally God grips my heart, you know, and it's like delete. And it's probably one of some of the wisest decisions I've ever made. And you guys have probably found yourself in that same scenario and found that like person-to-person -person communication is usually better when you're upset and you're frustrated and those emotions are overflowing. But obviously Paul did not have that luxury of being able necessarily to go and, and, uh, and you know, pick up the phone and call somebody at least. You know, he was kind of limited sometimes to just writing these letters. And uh, so Paul, this is, this is one of Paul's most uh, uh, pointed, sharp, critical, there's a lot of different terms I've heard people refer to Galatians as. It was, he was very passionately upset with the church, the churches in, the Galatia, in Galatia. He was upset with the people and with the choices and decisions that they were making. And so he had to work really hard to affirm the positive nature of his relationship with them. And so you, you hear him saying quite a few times, brothers, you know, sisters, you know, appealing to that kind of familiar, familial connection there with them, brothers and sisters. Uh, but then right after that, you know, he uses that brother status to hit them on the back of the head and said, essentially, paraphrase, stop being stupid. That's kind of what Galatians is, is Paul is really coming down hard on, on these Christians and, and calling them out and saying, guys, you are seriously messing up. You guys got this totally wrong. You're, you're totally off base. And so uh, Paul is coming in like a big brother in there and and uh, he's with his letters, you know, figuratively slapping him upside the head and saying, stop it, guys, you got it all wrong. 
And so you can see this uh, through, throughout the book, how this, this emotion and this passion is coming out. And I like that uh, right from the very start, after Paul gives his greetings to the Galatians, he says, uh, right, like verse, chapter 1, verse 6, he says essentially, I'm amazed at you. And this isn't the like, man, you amaze me, like a good thing. This is like uh, shaking your head and like, guys, this is, I, I'm baffled. This is amazing that you guys have done this. It's like when Southerners say, bless your heart. It's like, you're just being, oh my goodness, this is stupid. I can't believe you did that. You know, you're, you're, you've gotten yourself into a world of trouble and it's all your own doing, bless your heart. That's kind of what Paul is like saying to these, uh, to these Galatians. He's saying, I'm amazed by you and it's not the good thing. He's saying, the reason I'm amazed uh, in a negative way is because you have turned to a different gospel. And he, he clarifies that real quick. He says, I, not that there is another gospel, but you've turned to something else that you're calling the gospel. You're trusting in it like it is the gospel, and you're going to be uh, uh, significantly disappointed if that's where you put your faith. And so Galatians 1.6, I'm amazed at how bad you've got this. Galatians 3.1, he says, you foolish Galatians, you, you guys are being foolish. He says, who cast a spell on you guys? Who has bewitched you? Who cast a spell on you? Galatians 4.20. You don't have to look up all these right away. We'll get in our passage a little bit later. You guys are, you know, just going all around. Sorry, I'm going too fast here. Galatians 4.20 says, I would like to be with you right now and change my tone of voice. I was like trying to ponder, how is he changing this? In the letter, I mean, he doesn't sound extremely cruel in this letter, although he's visibly, you know, it's like definitely upset with him. So I'm wondering if he's, is he meaning he's going to tone it down if you were with him? Or it's like me with I, when I'm upset with my kids, my tone of voice usually raises with when I'm with them. I think that's kind of what Paul is saying. He's like, you don't understand. I can't, I can't communicate with you in a letter how frustrated I am. You know, and, and uh, if I were Paul, uh, you know, I would be like, and I was there, it would kind of be one of those throat choking kind of get the people's attention kind of scenarios. Guys, listen, listen, listen. Got it all messed up. You totally, I gave you something beautiful, and you have totally destroyed it and made it into something ugly and worthless and, and awful. And, uh, and so Paul's very upset with them. He says, I'd, I'd, right now, I'd wish I could be with you and change my tone of voice because, and he sounds like a parent here, because I don't know what to do about you. How many of you parents have said that about your kids before? Everyone who has kids, shake your head. I don't know what to do with you. Paul was at his wit's end. Uh, and all of a sudden, now, now all the parents are like, oh, okay, I can understand where Paul's coming from. Uh, this guy's really struggling. So we're going to watch this video that's going to give you a broad overview of the book of Galatians. And it's artistically done, and it has a narrator, and the narrator does a very good job. He's very kind-hearted, just in his tone of voice, very nice and, and a nonchalant. But I don't want you to lose out that, as Paul's writing this, that he's doing the, the palm to the forehead the whole time, beating his head on the wall with these Galatian people, okay, with these Galatian Christians. And so we're going to go ahead and cue up the video, eight minutes long, and then uh, we'll wrap things up here. Paul's letter to the Galatians. It was written to a number of churches in the region of Galatia, where Paul had traveled on one of his missionary journeys. You can read the stories in the book of Acts. He wrote this important letter from a place of deep passion and frustration. Here's the backstory. 
Christianity began as a Jewish messianic movement in Jerusalem, but its message was for all humanity, and so it quickly spread beyond Israel. By Paul's time as a missionary, there were as many non-Jews as there were Jewish people in the Jesus movement, and this sparked a huge debate that we know about from the book of Acts chapter 15. Historically, the covenant people of God were focused in one ethnic group, Israel, and they were set apart by the practices commanded in the Torah, like circumcision of males, eating kosher, observing the Sabbath. And there were many Jewish Christians who believed that for all of these non-Jews to truly become a part of God's family, they needed to obey the laws of the Torah. And so some of these Jewish Christians ended up coming to the Galatian churches. They were undermining Paul and demanding circumcision of all these male non-Jewish Christians. And so many of them were. And when Paul found out, he was brokenhearted and angry. And this letter is the result. He first challenges the Galatians with his summary of the gospel message about the crucified Messiah. He then argues that this gospel is what creates the new multi-ethnic family of Jesus and Abraham. And then he shows how this gospel is what truly transforms people by the presence and power of the Spirit. He opens by expressing his bewilderment that the Galatians have embraced a different gospel. It's the one promoted by these Christians who badmouth Paul and demand circumcision. So Paul first defends the authenticity of his message and authority as an apostle. He was commissioned by the risen Jesus himself to go to the non-Jewish world. Remember the story from the book of Acts. Paul says it was only later that he went to Jerusalem to consult the other apostles like Peter or James. And when he told them he wasn't requiring non-Jewish Christians to be circumcised or eat kosher, they were in full support. But this tension ran deeper. Peter had come to Antioch to visit and see all of these non-Jewish Christians, and he was eating and mingling with them. But when some of this Jerusalem opposition group showed up in Antioch, Peter caved under their pressure. He stopped eating with these uncircumcised Christians, and he was avoiding them. And so Paul confronted and accused Peter of hypocrisy, of not staying true to the gospel. For Paul, demanding these new Christians to become circumcised and Torah-observant, it's wrong-headed for all kinds of reasons. First of all, because it's a betrayal of the gospel. Or, in his words, people are not justified by the works of the Torah, but rather by the faith of Jesus the Messiah. And we have faith in the Messiah Jesus. To be justified, or literally to be declared righteous, it's a rich Old Testament term for Paul. It's when God declares that someone is in a right relationship with him. They're forgiven, they're given a place in God's family, and they are being transformed by God's grace. And it's Paul's conviction that no one can be justified by observing the commands of the Torah, but only by the faith of Jesus. This is a dense phrase, and it could refer to Jesus' own faithfulness in living and dying on our behalf, or it could refer to our own trust and devotion to Jesus. Either way, the point is clear. People are justified only through trusting in what God did for them through Jesus, not by what they do for themselves. At the heart of Paul's gospel is this claim, that when people trust in the Messiah Jesus, what's true of him becomes true of them. His life, death, and resurrection become theirs. Or in his words, I've been crucified with the Messiah, and it's not I who come back to life, it's the Messiah living in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so the reason anyone can say that they are right with God or belong to Jesus' covenant family, it's not because they obeyed the laws of the Torah. It's only because of what Jesus did for them that they could never do for themselves.
Now, this profound understanding of what Jesus accomplished, it has huge implications for who can now be included in God's covenant family and for what it means to live as a member of that family. So Paul first turns to the stories about Abraham in Genesis, how he was justified or declared righteous before God by simply having faith, by trusting in God's promise that one day all nations would find God's blessing through him and his offspring. God's purpose was always to have one large multi-ethnic family of people who relate to him on the basis of faith, not on the laws of the Torah. But that raises an important question. Why did God give the laws of the Torah to Israel then? Here Paul offers a very brief and dense explanation that he will later fill out in his letter to the Romans. He observes that the laws of the Torah were given to Israel at Mount Sinai long after God's promise to Abraham. And if you read the Torah carefully, he says, you'll see that God always intended the laws to be a temporary measure. He says the laws had both a negative and a positive role. Negatively, the laws acted like a magnifying glass on Israel's sin. They exposed how Israel shared in the sinful human condition, constantly rebelling against God's law. And so the law, which is good, ended up pronouncing Israel guilty and all humanity with them. Or in his words, the laws imprisoned everyone under the power of sin. But the laws also had a positive role. They acted like a strict school teacher that kept Israel in line until the coming of the promised offspring of Abraham, the Messiah. And once the Messiah came, he fulfilled the purpose of the laws on Israel's behalf. Jesus was the faithful Israelite who truly loved God and neighbor. And as Israel's king, he died to take the curse and consequence of Israel's failure into himself and bring redemption. And so now through Jesus, the offspring of Abraham, God's blessing can come to all people, regardless of their ethnicity, social status, or gender. For Paul, requiring Torah observance from non-Jewish Christians, it makes no sense. It's acting as if Jesus didn't fulfill God's promise or deal with our sin. It neglects the new freedom gained for us through Jesus and the gift of the Spirit, and it limits God's promise and blessing to one ethnic family. But, Paul's opponents might argue, the laws of the Torah, they're a proven guide to living according to God's will. How will non-Jewish Christians learn this? Paul responds in chapters 5 and 6 by describing how Jesus' transforming presence through the Spirit is the key. The laws of the Torah are good. They're wise, Paul says. In fact, they can all be summarized, as Jesus did, in the command to love your neighbor as yourself. But the laws, good as they are, they did not give Israel the power to obey them. In contrast, the good news is that Jesus did fulfill the laws on our behalf, and now he lives in us through the Spirit, making his people into new humans who fulfill the law by loving others. So Paul goes on to contrast this old and new humanity. The habits of the old humanity are obvious. These are behaviors that dehumanize people, they destroy relationships and whole communities. And while the laws of the Torah prohibited these behaviors, Jesus actually put them to death on the cross. So when a person trusts in Jesus and lives in dependence on the Spirit, his life becomes theirs and produces what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. This is Jesus' way of life that he wants to reproduce in his family so that they become people of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But this fruit isn't automatic, Paul says. It requires cultivation just like real fruit. Or in his words, if we live by the Spirit, we have to keep in step with the Spirit. This requires intentionality. 
we have to learn how to prune off our old habits and cultivate new ones. And as we do so, we find ourselves carried along by the Spirit as Jesus reshapes our minds and hearts and makes us into people who love God and others. And in this way, Jesus' people fulfill what Paul calls the Torah of the Messiah. In the end, Paul concludes, this requirement for Christians to become Torah observant or be circumcised, it's an adventure in missing the point. What really matters is God's new creation, this new multi-ethnic family of the Messiah, people full of faith in Jesus who are learning to love God and others in the power of the Spirit. And that's what the letter to the Galatians is all about. Did you memorize all that? Got it stuck in your mind, I hope. That helps me. Those visual reminders help me. To, and I'm going to have a hard time remembering it all still, even though I've seen it a few times. But I'd encourage you guys. This is all on Right Now Media. I'm doing a little commercial here, here real quick. Right Now Media is like the Netflix of Christian videos, Bible studies, all sorts of great resources. And uh, this same thing was done, I think, if not for all, pretty close to all of the books of the Bible. And so if you're looking for some pretty cool overviews of different books of the Bible before, we, before you start studying them, go to Right Now Media and check this out. If you don't have Right Now Media and haven't signed up for it yet, there's a sign-up sheet down uh, in the Media Center. It's totally free to you. This is one of the gifts from the church to all of you. And anyone that falls under our umbrella of ministry, it's pretty broad. Right Now Media wants to be a blessing uh, to us and everyone that's affected by our ministry. And so if you've got family members uh, that you are actively ministering to and their church doesn't provide them this, this is a resource that you can invite them to use as well. But if you haven't signed up for it yet yourself, go down to the media center there, just put your name and your email and we'll send you an invitation. You just uh, log in, come up with a password and, and log in and you're, you have access to thousands of awesome uh, Bible resources to help you out in your spiritual journey there. So anyways, that's the, that's the resource there I wanted to make sure you guys knew about. But the big issue in Galatians, if you want to write it down, comes from Galatians 1.6. And I mentioned it earlier, and that's when Paul says, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ. That's, he's, kind of, he's already starting to like give them two, uh, two images of what, they're, what, they're, uh, what they did have and what they are turning to. It says, from, uh, from him who called you by grace of Christ, which is an amazing thing, and they are turning to a different gospel. Again, not that there is another gospel, but they were calling it that. They were relying on that other gospel to do the same thing that the one true gospel did. And he didn't want them to wake up one day and be severely disappointed that they had, uh, they discovered finally, too late, that they were trusting in the wrong gospel. And so... Uh, so Paul's really trying to, to get this stuck in their head, that you guys have gone a horrible direction. Uh, when I was younger, my older brother, I remember he came up to me and he was like, hey, John, that's a nice dime you got there. Uh, you want to trade it for this penny here? And I had no clue the value of money. And uh, Wes, so Wesley knew that, and he, of course it's Wesley. And Wesley took, the, uh, he took his, his, um, his penny and he was like, look how much bigger my penny is than your dime. And I'm like, ooh, you're right. And he's like, and mine has Abraham Lincoln on it. Who's heard of that guy on yours? And I was like, oh, that's a good point. I've heard of Abraham Lincoln. And, you know, he's just, he's selling me on this whole penny thing. And finally, I take him, I get my dime, I give it to Wesley, and he gives me his penny. And I'm, I'm excited. I'm happy. And I have no idea that I have been totally ripped off. 
This, this was, again, when I was a lot younger, although I'm sure Wesley would do this to me today if he had the opportunity. He, I was totally ripped off. I was, you know, and I, I didn't realize it at all. And I'm like, yeah, hey, I got a penny. And, and my parents found out about it. And so they come in and, and they are very upset with my brother for ripping me off. And then they take it as an opportunity to teach me about the value of money. And Paul is angry here that the Galatians are being ripped off. And as long as they didn't understand the value of what they had, they would continue to be ripped off. They were trading the gospel of grace for a gospel of works. They were trading the finality of what Jesus did on his work on the cross on our behalf for the sum total of works that we could do on our own. Which Paul in other letters, he tells them that all of our good works, all of our righteousness, if we piled it all together, it's worth the same as filthy rags and a pile of scubula, which is Greek for poop. It's, that's all, all of humanity's works piled together, that's all it amounts to. And you just traded a gospel of grace for a pile of poop. I just said poop twice in a sermon. I'm loving it. They were trading all the gold and bitcoins in the world for a penny. What can you buy with a penny? Nothing. Why don't we get rid of the penny? I don't know. We should. What can you buy with a penny? Nothing. But what can you buy with works? Nothing. Nothing. And that's Paul's point here, guys. You guys are getting royally ripped off, and this ticks him off. Imagine Paul sitting down with his kids and trying to teach them the value of the one true gospel. Galatians 2.16. You can turn there real quick. Galatians 2.16. This is what Paul says. He says, know that no one is justified. Justified is what is at stake here. Justified is a big term. This is everything hinged on this. How do we become justified? How do we become right before God? How are we forgiven? How do we have access once we are forgiven to all the goodness of God? unfettered, unheld back, all the goodness of God is ours to have. All of his promises, pressed down, shaken together, running over. How can we be justified? It sounds like a, just one of those, you know, kind of lame theological terms, but when you start looking at everything that it implies, that it's a door that gives us access to everything that God is, all of a sudden you're like, wow, how can we be justified? This is a very good question. How can we be justified, have forgiveness, have God's goodness and love and provision and promises? How can we have all of that? That is what is at stake. Know that no one is justified by the works of the law. He just slammed that door back in their face and said, guys, you're going through the wrong door. It doesn't work. It doesn't go that direction. He says, no one is justified by the works of the law. Worthless. Worthless. But by faith in Jesus Christ, priceless. And we have believed in Christ Jesus, priceless, so that we might be justified by faith in Christ, priceless. And not by the works of the law, worthless, because by the works of the law, no human, human being will be justified, worthless. So if you kept track of the worthlessness and pricelessness, it's worthless, priceless, 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 worthless, worthless. Got it? You see Paul kind of making the, he's, he's, he's sitting the kids down telling them, bad penny, bad penny, good dime, good dime, bad penny. You know, that's kind of what he's doing here, getting them to understand. How worthless is the law when it comes to justification before God? Again, like a, a, a parent or a Sunday school teacher, chapter 3, verse 2. I'm going to rattle through these kind of quick. I apologize, but uh, we got we to make some hay here. Chapter 3, verse 2 says, 
Paul asked, again, imagine a Sunday school teacher sitting down with their, their kids. How did you receive the Spirit? By obeying the works of the law or believing? Yeah, this is what happens in my Sunday school class too. <laughs> it's perfect. Thank you guys. What happened? He says, how did you receive the Spirit? By obeying the works of the law or believing? Believing. Yeah, yeah I kind of say it the same way my Sunday school does too. Chapter 3, verse 5, a couple of verses down. Paul asks another question. How does God work miracles among you? By works or believing? Believing, yep. Maybe by the third time y'all will get it. Chapter 3, verse 6. What made Abraham right before God? Obey laws or by believing? There, good job. Yeah, the coffee's kicking in finally. Exactly. Abraham believed and it was credited to him for righteousness. That was kind of a trick question. Did Abraham, was, it, was he determined uh, righteous by the works of the law? And this is, you saw it in the video here. It's like, that was impossible. Why? What came first, the law or Abraham? Abraham did. So that there's no way that the, the law could justify Abraham. How could he, being the father of Abraham, you know, father Abraham, the man, you know, how could he be justified without the law? It's because he wasn't. He was justified by faith. By faith, he believed God and took him at his word. He took him at his word. Then Paul, in chapter 3, verse 10, he, Paul says this, but you know, you guys, if you still are whole, kind of like connected to this whole justified by the law thing, I'll let you have it, but I just want you to know something. If you rely on the works of the law, not only are you not justified, not only are you not justified, you don't get to go through that door of forgiveness and exploring God's goodness for eternity, you're also under a curse. Congratulations. You guys, do you really want to go through this door? Do you see the powerful argument that he's making to his kids? Guys, stop getting ripped off. Chapter 3, verse 13, go down a little bit more, and Paul he points out, he shows them the pricelessness of the gospel. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming the curse for us. We are under a curse if we are under the law. But Christ came down as a baby, grew into a man, died on the cross, became the curse for us. So that we would not have to die under the curse of the law. And he says, he became the curse for us. And then on in verse 14, the purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. Priceless. That's how we receive it. Just like Abraham. This is the awesome thing is that salvation by grace through faith was not plan B. God did not give the law to the Israelites as kind of like a little test, you know, a little test grouping. We'll take, this will be group A, uh, then we'll call them the Israelites, and we'll give them the law, and we're going to see how this does at saving them. That wasn't God's plan A. That wasn't God's plan A. God's plan A right from the very start was uh, salvation by grace through faith, not of ourselves. Before a single sacrifice was made under the law, God had a plan for all people to be by, saved by grace through Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? It's awesome. I want to be very clear, though, because I spent a lot of time calling the law worthless. And I did that more to make a point. And a better term might have been powerless. 
I want to make sure that you don't go away with the, the wrong mentality here because the law is not worthless. It was when it comes to justification. The law is not worthless. It was not bad. On the contrary, God, it was God ordained. God gave the law. And it served two important purposes. Here's quiz. Here's a quiz for you. What were those two important purposes? Anybody remember? Yeah, 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 exactly, Dave. You got that part. There's two, the law specifically, and that was like summarized in the, you know, in the law. But it said the law performed two important uh, functions. What were the two important functions when you saw on the video? Yeah, yeah, that's a big part of it too. Y'all are all awesome. Yeah. What, what, hold on, what did you say? It magnifies something. What? Magnifies sin. Yeah, I know it was a lot of information. I'm being mean by even like trying to get you to say what I'm thinking in my head, which I knew beforehand because I watched the video many times. It did two things. This is what I'm looking for. It did two things. One, it magnified our sins. I don't want you to get the wrong impression here. In the video, they showed an actual magnifying glass. That, what does a magnifying glass do? It takes something small and makes it look big. I didn't like that. That was one part of the video I didn't really like a whole lot. Because there's a lot of people who think that God uses a magnifying glass on our sins. That he takes it on our lives and he's looking for these tiny little things. Come on, they took an apple or a fruit in the Garden of Eden and they, they die because of it. You know, they're like, God is clearly using a magnifying glass looking at our sins. He's taking something small and making a big deal out of it. That is totally wrong way of looking at magnification of our sins. That's not what the law is doing. What the law is doing is the magnification like a telescope would. A telescope, what does that do? That takes something that is seemingly far away that we don't see, we don't have that perspective to understand it. It seems so small, so minuscule when we look up into the sky. But when we look through that telescope and we, see, look, you know, we look at that little tiny thing, and it's not even like a planet or star, it's an asteroid. But then we start looking at it and we're like, oh no, that asteroid, oh that's pretty big. Oh, it is coming right for us. Oh no, that asteroid is going to kill us. That's a bad thing. That's what the, the law does is it magnifies the impending doom coming our way. Our sin, that's what the law does. So all of a sudden, you know, we're like, is the, is the telescope bad because it shows us our death is coming? No, the, te- the telescope, the magnification is good because all of a sudden we're like, we better do something. Something has to be done. It's probably a better way. We can't do anything because all of our righteousness, all of our obedience to the law, it, when it's all piled up from all mankind for all time, it amounts to filthy rags and a pile of scubula. That's all it is. And so the law is not bad. It's good. But when it comes to justification, it is worthless. It doesn't do what the Jews were hoping it would do. And the second thing that the law did is that it acted as a guardian. It helped keep sin in check. It prepared our hearts for the Savior. It prepared our hearts for the Savior. So again, only in the context of justification is the law worthless. The law is ordained, blessed by God, and it served a very important purpose. I like to think of it in terms of like water filtration. When I look at, you know, the law and the function that it served in the Old Testament and and the gospel of grace uh, in the New Testament that we have here, I like to think of it in terms of of water filtration. Um, Imagine our lives are like a totally contaminated river. Uh, you can pick a local one if you like, or any other body of water in the, next to a big city that is completely contaminated, contaminated, and there's no way that you would drink out of it without becoming sick. 
Now imagine the, the law, I imagine, is like a spaghetti strainer or something like that. That you go down to the river and, and you're like, you're, you know, you're filtering out the water. Does it filter some? Yeah, it filters out the big chunks, the big nasty floaties on the water. You can get those out of there. But it is, does it, and it helps. It helps take care of the big chunks, but it does it actually serve the purpose of purifying the water. No. The law, it helps. It helps you know, it helps restrain sin. It helps keep people from murdering each other and such. You know, it takes out some of those big things. But when it comes down to actually the penalty of the curse of the law, we are still unpurified. We are undrinkable. You know, it's like, but then when you get like one of those good, are they called life straws? Matt, I think you have one, don't you? Life straws. You know, those, those purifiers you can put in and they got multiple levels of, of filtration. They go down to the microns and I think they, they um, actually take out uh, bacteria and some of them viruses and it's amazing what some of these filtration devices do that's what the gospel does and paul again he's like guys don't go down to the river and drink with the with your you know spaghetti strainer that's stupid don't do that he's like go down with this with this uh, this great life straw this water filtration thing that actually it, it purifies and it, it brings life that's that's the difference don't don't trade. Don't leave home. Don't go on these hikes and in the mountains with your spaghetti strainer. Not going to work. Make sure you have the right, the right salvation, the, the right door to be justified by grace through faith. I hope that helps make sense. It made sense in my mind anyways. So don't trade the priceless for the worthless. I think that's, there's a lot of good definitions of sin. I kind of like that one. Because that's what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. They traded the priceless dependence on God and all his provision for independence and what they could provide for themselves. They traded the priceless for the worthless. They got ripped off. We get ripped off all the time. So a couple of practical takeaways here. Get ready to close up. I was trying to think about this because we... In the church, we talk a lot about life in terms of, you know, you're not saved by works. And I think that was a huge deal, especially in the early church. And I think historically that was bigger deals at certain times in history more so than others. But I think, you know, talking to you guys here right now today, I'm not sure if there's a whole lot of us that are like, that are putting our trust in our works to save us. I, you know, I, I don't get that sense from you guys when we talk. And so it's kind of hard, like, how do we apply this? And so while I don't think that many of us rely on works to save us, I do think that a lot of us rely on works to define our relationship with God. And this is where, this is like kind of the, the heart, I think, that I, I really want us to kind of like, want to penetrate us in our lives. We don't rely on works to save us, but a lot of times we allow works to define our relationship with Jesus. And that's bad. And the... The way I think of it, again, is it's like, I love it when my kids do chores. Eunice and I are blessed when our kids do chores. You know, it's just like, especially if we don't have to ask them and they just go do it on our own. We're like, and it actually contributes to our relationship. It helps that relationship. But if the foundation, if the essence, if the nature of our relationship, my relationship with my kids was only on them doing chores, would you guys say that is a healthy relationship or an unhealthy relationship? Yeah, that'd be messed up. You'd be like, those guys are slaves. They're not, I mean, yeah, it's good that they do that, but you're just like, that's, that's not normal. I, they would be getting ripped off, and I would be getting ripped off too. 
And this, I think, is the immediate danger for every single one of us going to church every week, is that it's very easy for us not to just let, we, we, not to make works the foundation of our salvation, but we make it the foundation of our relationship with God, where we go and we serve, 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 serve. And we're like, if we do that, God, God will answer my prayers, and God will do all these different things. And it's like, no, I mean, that, that's a good thing. In the book of James, it talks like faith without works is dead. It, doing chores and helping out in the home and all these other things, those are great. But if that's the foundation and nature of the relationship, that's bad. That's not, bad. Uh, that's not good at all. The whole Mary and Martha thing, you guys are so familiar with that story. When, when Jesus went to Lazarus and Mary and Martha's home, he's hanging out with them. And uh, uh, who was it? Martha. I always get them confused. Martha. Uh, she, uh, she was doing all the work and all the prep work and doing everything. And she was upset because she looked over and Mary's over there talking. She, that Mary's talking to her, talking, talking, talking. And uh, she went up to Jesus and said, Jesus, that, that uh, Mary, she, you know, I'm over here doing all the work, and she's over there and, you know, talking, talking with you and everybody else. And, and uh, she was upset about that. And Jesus said, you know, Martha, Mary's doing what is better. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus. You know, that's what she was doing. She was gleaning. She was there doing that relationship. She realized what was most important. And I think especially for us and, and Baptists, you know, we, we love serving, and that's a great thing. That's a beautiful thing. But we can never let service take the place of the relationship and sitting at the feet of Jesus. And that is of immense importance that we spend that time with Jesus. As pastors, it's horrible because, you know, it's easy for us just the only time we spend in, in the Bible is, is sometimes in prep. And it's almost like becomes a work thing, and it's hard to be a personal thing. Guys, this is a challenge for everyone. It doesn't matter who you are, what you're doing. You know, you serving in the nursery, awesome, amazing things. But guys, there's a reason why we say you can only serve a certain number of times down in children's ministry a month. We try to limit it and say, and we want you to be in, we want you to be with the body of Christ. We want you to be fed. We want you to be growing. We want you to be challenged. Don't be serving to your own detriment. And that is something that we are very good at. And I think one of the reasons that we do that. It's because it is easier, it's easier for us to work than for us to be challenged by a personal relationship with God and what he might just say to us, like what he said to Skip and Couture when they were, uh, I don't know where y'all were when God spoke to you, but oh my goodness, what happened to them might happen to us. That's a scary thing. That scares me sometimes to think. I would much rather work in the nursery than Go to Japan with my whole family. You know, it's like it, it, it might not be ideal. You know, <laughs> baby's crying stuff. Uh, but, you know, it's better than what else God might have me do. You know, sometimes we can use work as an excuse, as an alternative to living our lives in dependence on God and being willing to do what he asks us to do, which is the true picture of what salvation is. It's, I, it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in and through me. That's what happens. That's the life transformation that happens in our lives. So don't rely on works to save you, and don't rely on works to be the foundation of your relationship after salvation with God either. Both are dangerous. A uh, couple other things real quick. It's, it's more of a question. I didn't know how to word this one. But the question is, how did they turn from the gospel so quickly? You know, Paul was upset with them. He was very upset with them. How did they turn from the gospel so quickly? And when I was reading through it in Galatians 2, 11 through 13, it kind of tells the story. And I'm not going to read through it all, even though I kind of wanted to. 
But at the heart of it, it says this in verse, at the end of verse 12, it says, I was talking about Peter, the apostle Peter, the rock, you know, the guy who was, you know, like on this rock, I will build a church. And the vision came to Peter about how the Gentiles were no longer unclean, but they were clean. And so Peter was eating with the Gentiles. He was hanging out with the Gentiles because they were no longer unclean, but they were clean. It was no longer slaves and free, Jews and Gentiles, male and female. It was one family of God. And so Peter was enjoying that family of God, hanging out with them and eating with them at the table. But then it says that these Jews came in and were trying to mix their, their Judaism and the laws and the Torah in with Christianity. And they came in and, and you know, they were, must have been very influential people because it says here that because uh, that Peter caved and stopped sitting with the Gentiles because he feared those from the circumcision party. He feared man. If you want to make stupid decisions and go the wrong directions, make a fool of yourself Peter, this, this is one of my favorite passages because Peter's kind of like one of those guys. He got called out in public because of his hypocrisy. Paul had to, he had to, I don't think Paul like took this lightly and I don't, I don't want you guys to go around like calling each other out in public all the time. That's not the takeaway I want you to get from this one. But this, this was, Paul was saying, or Peter was saying something about the gospel and what he was doing here. And Paul started taking that personally. He's like, He's like, if anyone, he told the, uh, the Galatian uh, this, he said, if anyone preaches you to a gospel other than the one that I have given you, even if, it, even if I myself do it, or if an angel do it, or anyone else does that, let them be cursed. And Peter was doing that. Peter wasn't going out preaching this, but pre Peter said something. Peter said something about the gospel by the way he lived his life. That's application for you. What are you saying about the gospel by the little decisions in your life? Not a, sometimes we wait for, you know, those big things that we can do to serve God. But I think a lot of the ways that we serve God are in these little decisions. Uh, kind of a closing question here again is, is uh, sounds kind of silly. Can you sit anywhere you want when we have potlucks? Sounds stupid, doesn't it? You're just like, what? Is that really application? Am I, t I was trying to explain this to Eunice last night, and she kind of just looked at me like, okay. Can you sit anywhere you want at Pollock's? I mean, that's the issue that Peter was having, was it? It was like, where do I, who do I have to sit with? And I think we would all say, yes, we can sit with everyone because we are free in Christ, and none of you are unclean. Isn't that great news, guys? Yeah, none of you are unclean. We can sit with each other. But this is the question is, do you? Do you? It's really easy for us to sit with the same people, the, our friends, our family, all the time. What do we say about the gospel to other people when those are the only people we sit with? We're doing it for different reasons, but we're doing the same thing that Peter did. We just preached the gospel to someone else. They're like, unless you're my friend or I'm related to you, you're not important. We wouldn't say that out loud, and we might not even be thinking it. But this is the thing we got to get through our minds, guys, is that all of our actions, all the things that we do, I wrote down a whole list of them here, and I'll see if I can find them. It's like everything we do says something about the gospel. Every choice we make tells someone a message. Everything you do brings someone closer or further away from God. we got to stop looking for those big, I mean, I shouldn't say we stop looking for those big opportunities to serve God, definitely. But I think 
what's sometimes more important and more available, more immediate in, in our endeavor to uh, let our love overflow in our lives and let that light and testimony go into other people's lives is the, these little decisions just like who am I going to sit with at the potluck? It seems silly, but guys, this is like life transformational stuff. Because if you get up and you leave your family and your friends and you walk across and you go sit at another table with someone who, who hasn't really been hanging out or sitting with a lot of other people, what did you just preach to them? Yeah. You preached them that they, they matter. Just as much as your family matters. Just as much as their friends matter, they matter. That's the gospel. It doesn't matter who they are, what they did, how sinful they are. God came and died for us. He came and he pursued us. Shouldn't we be pursuing other people? If we can't do it in the church, and we'll keep saying this every time I preach it, if we can't do it in the church, what business do we have doing outside our walls? We, if we go outside our walls and says, yes, you need to become part of the church because it's glorious, and they get here and they're like, ugh. It just undermined everything that we told them in the gospel if we can't live out the gospel message here. Does it matter who we sit with? Yeah, it does. Because everything we do shares the gospel, sends a message about the God we serve.